I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hi, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. This is Kate, and we are so excited to be sharing an incredible interview with you today. We had the chance to sit down for an hour with our friend Moby, who I met. We'll tell you the story of how we met in the interview, but he's been a really funny character in our lives for quite a while, and it was really cool that he said yes to coming on the podcast after Mike and I both read his memoir, Porcelain, which we'll talk about in the interview because it's a phenomenal book. So we covered a lot. I told Moby in an email following up, should you ever decide to want to stop making music and being an animal rights activist, you could really make a killing as a spiritual teacher. <laughs> yeah, it's really, he's been through a lot and it's amazing to read his book, Porcelain. We talk about the book a lot, but for those of you who don't know Moby, DJ, animal rights activist, musician. all around great guy, musician, what else does Moby? I don't know. And I bet you if you somehow don't know who he is, if you heard some of his music, you'd be like, oh, I know that song. Yeah. Really? I mean, when we were in high school, was it high school? High school, high school, college. When did Southside come out with Gwen Stefani? I was going to bring up his bio and we could actually officially read it, but I forgot. But yeah, That's okay. he's phenomenal. If you Google Moby, we forgot to ask him the last question we ask everybody, or we've only had two other guests, but like, how can they find out about you? If you just Google Moby, M-O-B-Y... You'll find some stuff. Go to Spotify. He has a wide His, variety like, great, of music. great grand uncle was Herman Melville. Yeah. And growing up, his nickname was Moby, or his parents started calling him Moby as a joke, and then it stuck. But his real name is Richard Melville Hall. Right. So enjoy the interview and share it up with your friends. If you like it, you can share it. And what, what do the YouTubers say? You can share, you can like, and you subs- can subscribe. Yeah, that's what they do. So you can we'll get better at that, Kate. And just a quick public service announcement. We are currently promoting the do less experiment, which actually is right in line with what we talked about with Moby. It was Mm -hmm. kind of amazing, particularly listen in for his thoughts on the holidays and why he enjoys them so much. But the do less experiment. So this is a 14 day free adventure in finding out what would happen if we did less in our lives as a strategy for better living. So go over to do less experiment.com. The experiment starts January 19th. It's free and we'd love to have you on board. Enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to the Kate and Mike show. I'm Kate. This is Mike. And we're here with Moby today. I'm so excited. This has been a long time coming due to the fact that I was a spaz and screwed up the time zone once and there was another thing that happened. Thanks for sticking with us, Moby. I really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Not not my proudest moment as my own secretary. (laughs) I was like, there are only three hours in terms of time zones between California and you're in Maine? Yeah. And I was like, but... The way you had sent it, it, there was a 21-hour time difference. And I got <laughs> I got really confused. So I'm glad there isn't a 21-hour time difference. I mean, technically there is if you're going the other direction. If you were but, to go from Portland, Maine, via Asia to L.A., it would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks for being here with us today. So just a little background for listeners. Moby and I met in New York. I don't know. It was a long time ago. And uh, when I was cleaning our computers, I found that picture from 2009. Okay. Of you guys. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like ages ago, but, it, but I don't know you know. Before that. I think it was actually Moby before you got sober the second time. Oh, yeah. I mean, to put it in perspective, I think that uh, George W. Bush was president. I believe that is true. Yeah. And we met through our mutual friend, Heather Graham. And at the time, Heather and I were part of a little group with our friend Kirsten and my sister, and we called ourselves the Witches of Norton. I don't remember how that name came about exactly, but we called ourselves the Witches of Norton. And somehow, I don't know this part of the story, Moby, but somehow like you caught wind of it when you were hanging out with Heather one time. Yeah, I had been, I was having brunch with Heather, and she was telling me about her goddess group, which is how she described it. Yes. 
Maybe she thought witches sounded a little too off-putting. <laughs> it's not something, yeah, you, I guess you don't talk about it at brunch like that all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so she mentioned that, and she was telling me about Mama Gina and her goddess group, and I thought it was just really fascinating. And I asked if it was ever possible to be a fly on the wall, you know, to just come and, I don't know, observe. And so she invited me to the next goddess group. And then as odd as it might sound, at least this is how I remember it, we all got along so well together that I was made an honorary goddess. Exactly. Yeah. I think you came and then we were all like, he's really great. I think I just remember you're grateful. So we would get together and we would come up with rituals, basically. And just they might have to do with astrology. They might have to do with the time of year. We would just make stuff up. And one of the things we always did is brags, gratitudes and desires. And I remember your gratitudes were always incredibly insightful. Like, you know, you would be grateful for the way raindrops formed on a windshield or, you know, something really kind of profound, these moments of life that the rest of us weren't really paying attention to. So we kind of took a group vote and we were like, yeah, Moby should be part of the goddess group. <laughs> I mean, it's since then, it's been interesting trying to explain to some of my female friends, especially how I'm an honorary goddess. <laughs> you would have had to come to one of those gatherings. I have to say that's one of the things I miss the most about New York. And you've since moved to LA. Yeah. I've moved to Maine. I want to know, what do you miss most about New York? It's a good question. I guess because I live in Southern California, I miss living in a place where trees grow without irrigation. Mm. Mm. It's funny now. I'm like, I've been in LA long enough. So if I see pictures or images of lakes or rivers, I'm baffled. Like, I just wonder, like, where does all that water come from? Because <laughs> in LA, like we have a river that it's technically like a rhino, like a river in name only. <laughs> is that a real thing or did you just make that up? Well, no, rhino is like Republicans used to use that as a way of criticizing People like Mayor Bloomberg, they called him a rhino, like Republican in name only. Oh. And I thought that was funny. So in, here in L.A., we have like an area that would be river that rained. Right. And as odd as that sounds, that's pretty much the only thing that I miss about New York. I mean, I guess in some ways, I don't know if I miss the place so much, but I miss how I felt about it when I was 22 years old. Mm. You know, so like... It's that question of like, if you're nostalgic for a place, how much of it has to do with the place and how much of it has to do with who you were when you lived in that place? Yeah. You know? Wow. I love that. And it's that's a great question. It is. That's very true for me about New York. Yeah. There's like a nostalgia for that time in my life. But when I go to New York now, I like to leave soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... I have a similar experience where like I'll be walking around the East village and I'll sort of accept that it's a wonderful place. And it's an especially wonderful place for people in their twenties who want to be drunk all the time. Yeah. Which you were. Oh, for, I was for, for much of that time. I just really want to say we both read your book and loved it and listened to part of it too. You're such a good writer. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And Porcelain, just for listening, it's Moby's memoir that came out a couple months ago, or? I guess it came out in May of 2016. Okay. All right. So like seven months ago. What made you want to write a memoir? Well, part of it's what we were just discussing, where I had been at a party in Brooklyn, and I was telling some people about what New York had been like in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I noticed that they were hanging on my every word. And it wasn't necessarily because I was such a good storyteller, but it's just that the New York of the late 80s and the early 90s bears very little resemblance to New York of 2016. You know, so I was telling these stories about crack addicts and cheap rent, and they were really fascinated. So I just decided to write it all down and see if it was compelling or interesting. And it is. 
I would have to like force myself to go to bed at night because yeah. I wanted it so badly to read the next chapter. But I was like, oh, God, our baby's going to wake up at four in the morning no matter what. So yeah. <laughs> and then I even think like so we bounce back from reading it on the Kindle to listening to the audiobook in the car when we were driving. And I just like the like these are some really crazy stories and your tone throughout the entire thing is like the same. You know, it's, which it's, which is part of the best part of the audio book itself. The delivery is amazing. <clears throat> yes. Well, I think a lot of that has to do, and I'm sure you guys can relate to that, being a New England wasp. <laughs> I mean, that's just how we're brought up. It's like if you're telling someone that the barn is on fire or that you'd like another glass of lemonade, like you kind of deliver it in the same voice. <laughs> That is true. We are. Mike is actually from the Midwest, so it's a little different, but he has this sort of like, but it's the same thing in his family. Like we don't, there aren't like expletives used. We don't, there aren't, you know, it's not, I would go to some of my friends' families, like my friends had Irish parents and another friend had Italian parents and I would go to their houses and everybody yelled and I was scared all the time because nobody <laughs> yelled about anything or got intense about anything at my house. But at yep. the same, like there was just this whole other level of, they would just yell cause they loved each other. <laughs> yeah, just- I, it's funny. I was having lunch with an Italian friend of mine a few years ago And I jokingly asked her to be my life coach and teach me how to yell. (laughs) She just yelled all the time. Like if she was happy, she yelled. If she was sad, she yelled. If she was angry, she yelled. And I was like, no, in my family, I think I remember someone yelling once. And it probably had to do with like a football team winning on Thanksgiving or something, you know, sports related. Yeah. Yeah, it was the Patriots. It was all about the Patriots. Yeah, so, you know, uptight New England wasps like myself, like, no, yelling, it's just not something that we do with any degree of comfort. So, but the stories you tell in your book, especially the ones after you started drinking again, like, they're definitely not the stories of someone who is an uptight Darian wasp. So, like, now that, and I have a whole, I have a lot of questions here, but... Now that you are, and we'll back up later, but now that you got sober again and you are living in LA and are you still practicing yoga? Yeah. And practicing yoga and like you live a really different lifestyle than you did, than, you know, certainly than you talk about in your book. Do you find that you, like, would you call yourself uptight now was kind of drugs and alcohol your way of letting your freak flag fly? Like what... (laughs) How are things now as compared to that? Do you think you're uptight? I mean, now on the surface of things, I'm really dull. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, I like I look back at who I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And now, I mean, I'm almost ashamed to like admit in public how on the surface of things, my life is really boring. You know, like it's rare for me to be awake after 1030 or 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, it's like you have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. But the thing that's sort of disconcerting but also really nice is how relatively sane I feel. Like like I'm boring, but I'm much less driven by compulsion. You know, like a lot of what made me wacky before was compulsive behavior. You know, it was the compulsion to drink and to be promiscuous and to go out seven nights a week until five o'clock in the morning every night. And on the surface of it, it might have been exciting, but it was really coming from a very sort of desperate, needy place. And so I guess that's part of whether it's sobriety or age or spirituality is just coming to a place where you have a sort of more evidence-based, sane, I don't know, orientation towards the world. So you Mm. said that your life is boring, which, you know, that's obviously maybe you think that I bet other people wouldn't. But (laughs) then the question is, are you bored? Not really. No. I mean, but I feel like I should be (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, I'm not running around being promiscuous and I'm not desperately trying to go to four parties a night. And I'm, you know, content to stay home and work on music and meditate and go hiking and try and write books, you know, like I find these things to be really gratifying, 
but on the surface of it, like they're not very anecdotal. Like I couldn't imagine writing a tell all memoir of my life now. Cause it would just be, people would only read it if they wanted to fall asleep. It's like, well, I did this healthy thing and then I did this other healthy thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it sounds relaxing and really wonderful. I'm really happy for you. Well, thanks. Yeah. Well, yeah. Great. It's I, like I, really awesome. My 16 to 28 years were not to the extreme of Moby's book or what you went through, but I had a very good time as well. And I resonate with what you're saying. There's a lot of times I think back to my life then and realize like, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's boring now, but it's much different. Definitely in a good way as I'm sitting here talking to my wife and my daughter's downstairs. It's such a, it was just a different experience, you know, getting drunk for every day for yeah. weeks on weeks and everything. And one of the really fascinating things about that, I think, and I assume this is true for a lot of people, is, or I hope it's true, is when you can look back at who you were years ago, and on one hand, you don't recognize yourself, but on the other hand, you have a sort of, like, wistful compassion for who you were. You know, like, when I look back at just the terrible decisions I made, and, like, not just the bad choices, but, like, the thinking behind the bad choices, and I don't recognize that person, but I also, as I said, have this kind of like sort of gentle compassion, like, oh, you know, you poor little guy, like you were just, you were doing your best, but you didn't know better. Yeah. How do you take that? I love that. Looking back mm -hmm. at that, I guess. And how do you bring that to present day a little bit, you know, where it's like, it's re you're kind of redefining your life today versus what it was. Does that make sense? Well, or like the self-compassion piece? Yeah. Like how do you, because you bring that into your daily life now. It's hard. And it's sort of, I think to some extent speaks to the human condition, but especially the sort of Calvinist New England Judeo-Christian tradition that we're ostensibly a part of, like self-compassion is not something we're taught. We're taught self-criticism and self-discipline, but compassion for self you know, at least when I was growing up, that seemed like a, like a weak cop out. Right. Right. And but I mean, the human condition is just it's hard for everybody. I mean, I think that that's where so many different spiritual traditions end up is with that sense of like expansive compassion based on the understanding that being alive is remarkable but it's also short, confusing, and filled with a lot of pain. And so hopefully you then, like, you learn compassion for other people, you learn compassion for animals, you learn compassion for yourself, and it's not, like, an abstract idea. It's actually based on observing ourselves and the people around us and recognizing that even though life, as I said, is amazing, there are great things in our lives, there's so much you know, difficulty in them as well. And hopefully like observing that difficulty just gives us a sense of compassion. Absolutely. And I do think, at least in my experience, it's easier to be compassionate for my past self than myself today. Like when I really screw something up, like even emailing you the wrong time zones, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like even something silly like that, it's like, I beat myself up for hours about that. But if I had done that when I was 10, it's easier to be like, Oh, honey. <laughs> well, well, also, or if someone else had done that, right. you know, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, like you emailed me the wrong times. And my response was like, I was amused. I thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> there's certainly no like, thank you. <laughs> there's no like irritation or anything just like, oh, well, get, you know, that's what we do. We live these weird, busy, distracted lives and all of us make mistakes it's just like hopefully we're able to be sort of like gentle with ourselves when we make mistakes and maybe like learn from them and I, I sort of in a way define sobriety as being like i still make mistakes but i don't make as many of them the consequences aren't as severe yeah. i'm a tiny bit more forgiving of myself when i do screw up it's so beautiful so all those years you write in the book it's really detailed. So Mike and I were both curious. 
how do you remember all that stuff? Oh. Did you just add in some things that you didn't actually remember? Are you a journaler? I think part of it is, on one hand, I just, I, as far as I can tell, I just remember things. That's cool. But also... <laughs> That's amazing. Especially given the substance. Yeah. Like, wow, the substance abuse. Yeah. But there's another thing. I almost think of it as... Like, you know the book Remembrance of Things Past by Proust? I haven't read it, but I have heard of it. I, too, have never read it. Okay. <laughs> that makes me feel better. But there's, I know that it starts with him eating a little, like a cookie. And he eats this cookie. He has a sensory experience. And from that, like, all these memories mm -hmm. cascade. Yeah. And I find that in the act of, like, the act of remembering... Oddly enough, like memories serve as triggers or almost like mnemonic devices for other memories. So I'm pretty sure anybody, like if you remember what you were doing the summer of eighth grade and you remember a few details, like what sneakers were you wearing? What jeans were you wearing? What breakfast cereal you ate? You'll find that like all the other memories come flooding back. I literally am just thinking of something from the summer of eighth grade. And I am literally remembering like this boy I liked and just yeah. like what he was wearing totally came back to me. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so true. And the other thing is a lot of times you don't have to be that specific. Like in the book, if I'm remembering what music I was listening to and what clothes I was wearing as well, I tended to listen to the same music and wear the same clothes every day. <laughs> You know, it's not like on Tuesday I wore my clown costume and then a week later I was wearing military fatigues. Like I tended to wear <laughs> jeans and a T-shirt every day. Right. <laughs> yeah. Are you a journaler, though? I was for years, but the journals, in terms of writing the book, the journals weren't that helpful because in my journals, pretty much all I wrote about were the girls that I had crushes on and how they didn't like me back. <laughs> so there's no details about anything except for like, you know, for a few pages, I'd be obsessed with, you know, Kim. And then a few pages later, it'd be Anne. And then a few pages later, it'd be someone else with a waspy name. And but without mentioning anything about anything else that was going on. When did you start? How long did it take you to write the book? Like when did I guess you there was... The writing, like the initial writing was about a year and then the editing was about six months. Okay. And then for your memories, kind of like what the example you gave just a minute ago about remembering things backwards, like how did that start for you? Did you sit down and say, okay, in 2007, I forget the exact dates of the book. I think it was till 2009, right? It's 89 to 99. 89 to 99. So did you think back to say, okay, what was I doing in September of 89 and start there? Or how did it, that, how well, did it work to put it together? Cause I had no idea if I could write a good or interesting or relevant book, but I knew I had a bunch of weird stories. So the first thing I did was like establish a baseline criteria for the things that I was going to include in the book. And the baseline criteria was at the very least, the story should be entertaining yeah. You know, so even if they're not insightful, even if they're self-evident, I wanted them to be entertaining. So I came up with a long list of stories that I thought could sort of support chapters. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to take the time to write a book and ask people to read it, I should try and be honest. And if I can sort of offer my experience of the human condition to other people, because that's largely what we're all looking for. It's like yep. other people's experience of what it means to be alive. And like people share things that we might not be comfortable sharing, or they have insights that we might not have had yet. And we can hopefully learn from them. So that was sort of the intention behind writing it without any understanding of whether I achieved that or not. But so I think you did. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. I also found it. Yeah. I mean, what's really, I think it's actually really generous of you to have told the stories and added the insights on the human condition and your own really vulnerable sharing about religion and, and your mom and, you know, your background and your dreams and desires. I mean, because to be honest, the book would be entertaining just with the stories. So to have added in that extra piece, I think is really generous of you and makes the book that much more valuable, even though I would have loved it just with the stories. I love it that much more. So well, thanks. I mean, I guess it's also 
as we get older and we go, you know, whatever practice we get involved in, whether it's sobriety or meditation or what have you, is like, I don't know if you've had this. I assume you guys have had this experience. It's just like how much you come to appreciate the willingness to be honest on the part of other people. And then in turn, that hopefully inspires us to have a willingness towards honesty. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because it's the only thing that, you know, I mean, there's that great line that I love from Almost Famous is that the only true currency between two people is what you say when you're not trying to be cool. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's just like, that is so true. I've seen that movie so many times. I can actually, it's when, I think it's when Philip Seymour Hoffman is on the phone with young William Miller. (laughs) Right? And I think William Miller. I think so. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so good. I love love that that movie. movie. I love that Uh, movie. And then, so you stop the book. What made you decide to stop the book where you stopped the book in 90, right in 99? Well, it's that question, I guess if anyone's writing a memoir, is how much do and don't you want to include? Because like the longer the period you try to deal with, by definition, you have to give short shrift to a lot of the things that you've experienced. Right. You know, so if you're trying to cover an entire life in a 250-page book, like, you're taking chunk, you know, decades of your life and just sort of excluding them or giving them a couple of lines. And so I thought 10 years, I don't seem like a nice, easily digestible period in my life where, you know, just a lot of odd stuff happened. Yeah. And then interestingly, you chose to end it right before play was like huge. Yeah, kind of. I like the idea of ending at what ostensibly should have been the beginning of the book. No, it's clever. It's, it's well, the whole book has cliffhangers throughout every chapter. Well, and what's cool is like, I mean, I knew you know, you know that play is going to be huge, but it still makes it really fun as a book to read yeah. because you, even though you know what's going to happen, it's fun that you kind of don't. Yeah, that's the thing with memoir, like especially if it's a memoir written by someone who's alive. Even if they're like harrowing things are going on, you can have a degree of you can be relatively calm because you know that things work out. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, you're not like, uh oh, maybe the protagonist is going to die before the end of the book. It's like, well, the protagonist wouldn't be writing the book if they had died. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for your central nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with some of the stories that you tell, because it is like, oh, my God, is this guy going to make it? Do you want to write volume two? Yeah, it's funny. I've pretty much written volume two, oh, wow. but I have to go back and redo a lot of it because the story of volume two, which would be like 99 to 2008, is, I don't know, if I just write the stories, it's kind of cliched. It's about someone finding a lot of unexpected fame and completely succumbing to it and drinking too much and doing too many drugs and being promiscuous and looking for love in all the wrong places and making tons of mistakes. And that book has been written so many times. That's you know? true. And I will just say, cause you know, we work with a lot of people in the online entrepreneur space who are like, let's say, I really hope you don't take what I'm about to say is like belittling what you just said, but like, <laughs> let's, let's say we were to completely encapsulate what you just said. And you were a health coach and wanting to like, <laughs> And wanting to, you know, get healthy recipes out there and teach people about green juicing and whatever, they'll come to us and be like, well, but somebody's already, you know, somebody's already done that. But it's like they haven't done it. They haven't shared green smoothies in the way that only you could. So only you have those stories, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you'll do it beautifully. I can't wait to read the second, not the second version. And there's also, I know it's only a period of time, but a lot of those, because I've read a lot of these books as well, especially like Neil Strauss's books. And I know you mentioned him in your book and, Mm -hmm. but it like, there's no kind of light at the end of the tunnel that's, or the sun at the end of the tunnel where what we're talking about and how we started off this conversation in the first place and exactly what you're doing now. It's like, I find even today after I've read those, I went and kind of find out what those people are still doing today. And it's st- there's still a lot of darkness happening. So it's like, yeah. they never really, as I'm reading this word rise on the wall here, it's like they never rose out of that. And, time. I, and I guess it's that question, like and maybe this is overly ambitious on my part is like, we live in a world where safe to say the vast majority of people on the planet are like desperately pursuing things 
that they think will make them happy and in the process making themselves miserable and destroying themselves and the planet. Right. And the one odd, unique perspective I have is that I was given mm-hmm. more than I ever wanted. You know, like when I was growing up, I was playing in little bands and I thought that if I ever even made a record, I'd be the happiest person in the world. You know, I thought that if I had a record deal and lived in New York City, I'd be exploding with happiness. And then fast forward and end up selling a lot of records and having a lot of success. And I was never less happy. Mm. And I hope that like in book two, I just want to sort of try and be able to communicate that to people, even though I don't think anyone will actually believe it. Because there's this odd delusion we all or so many people work under, which is we can look at the evidence, let's say, around fame. You know, you look at the evidence around fame and you realize the majority of people who become famous end up miserable and leading fairly short lives. But everybody else who wants to be famous thinks that when they're famous, they'll figure it out. Like, you know, like, yeah. And it's just this bizarre, frustrating, baffling unwillingness that we all have to look at evidence. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's just our culture of like, everyone knows that, Eating bad food makes you sick. Everyone knows that leading a sedentary existence will make you sad and sick. Everyone knows that doing drugs is bad for you. Every, you know, like we all know, but yet we keep pursuing these things as if we're going to get different results. And I think that's, as I said, like the thing that I'd really like to communicate in the, the second book is that, you know, like whenever people are given more than what they wanted, you know, look at lottery winners and rock stars and movie stars, they usually end up much less happy than they were before they had the huge success or before they made the, you know, $200 million in the lottery or whatever. Yeah. And you got to write that book because it's way different than the other ones. You know, it will really resonate with our folks, which are, you know, in the personal growth spirituality world. Because that's the pursuit. Those are the questions. That's the like. And so I'm curious. So if you were talking about the people who, you know, think that despite the evidence, they're going to crack the code and somehow figure out how to get famous and have it make them happier. Right. And have all this money and have that make them happier. And that be the thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't I- want to put words in your mouth, but I think that you <laughs> could it, it's safe to say that like fame and money did not make you happier. Like, I think that's what you're saying. But do you think you're happier than you were, like, let's say, in your early 20s or during the decade of porcelain? It's really hard to say. Because I would say... <laughs> no, based on what? <laughs> because there's nothing... The things that we all look for, well, maybe not us as much, but the things that we have in our past looked at to deliver happiness, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Like, for me, there's nothing wrong with alcohol. There's even nothing wrong with drugs. There's nothing wrong with hedonism and fame. The problem is when you expect these things to meet needs that they're not designed to meet. Yes. You know, like going to a party is really fun if you just expect to have fun. If you expect to like meet your soulmate and advance your career and have the most enriching, best experience of your life, you might be a little disappointed if you're just in a bar with people drinking vodka. Right. You know, so I'm not maligning any of these institutions. I'm just saying like they are what they are and nothing. I don't think there's an institution or thing that has the ability to deliver sustainable happiness. And like for myself, like based on my own experience and the reading I've done, it just seems like happiness is one, an acceptance of the human condition And two, cultivating your ability to place your attention in a way like on small things that can deliver happiness. Like I and it might sound overly naive, but I think like there's more happiness to be found in like a beautiful glass of fresh squeezed orange juice than going on tour and playing to millions of people. Well, I don't think that's naive because you've experienced both of those things. Yes. So that's evidence-based. Again, I don't know if I'm just speaking for myself, but it seems like based on the evidence, I'm speaking for a lot of people. Like we think that 
when we have the right, almost like the right collection of stuff, you know, and it was funny, we were talking about New York because I really see New York as being the poster child for this. Like people think if they have the right career, the right relationship, the right amount of money, the right esteem. I mean, I feel like I'm describing Donald Trump, but, <laughs> you know, like people feel like we'll if they have this, this, this perfect collection that in a way they won't have to do any work, that happiness will be delivered to them. And I think what we find is like in order to be in some way sustainably happier, have sustainable well-being, like we have to make an effort. At least I certainly do. I certainly do. I think it takes work because the general culture and consciousness is always going to be heading toward what's wrong and what's, you know, and negativity and like. And so you do have, I think you have to work hard to paddle the other direction and be like, you know what, I'm going to just, I'm going to enjoy this orange juice, you know, or I'm going to, and that's what I loved when I first met you about the, that was what was profound about Mm -hmm. your gratitudes was it was like the moment when you had your fresh green orange juice in the morning or whatever it was. And so that's definitely a through line. Well, it's even in the book, you know, your first book, you talk about, you know, being in a, when you moved into the mafia area uh-huh <laughs> god stories are so amazing. good so good so which, which happened to be like rock and rolls freaking i know it like, hall of fame or something was all hanging out there Iggy Pop yeah and amazing all the, it was- so you just happened to move in there and you're like oh there's no shower in this room and everybody like all your friends were just like why would you not want to shower and you're like oh it's fine it's down the hallway you know and just having that you can experience that in your book and i started thinking about our life it's actually mm-hmm. with i've been addicted to points like credit card points and airline points and getting upgraded to you know in free hotel rooms and free flights and all this stuff it's actually over the last year and a half has overtaken my life that says like i might get on a plane but if i don't get upgraded to first class like the whole plane ride for me is miserable and I'm just like, this is crazy. Like, I'm in 30,000 feet in the air in this jet, like, flying from California to New York. And I told Kate this, like, this was during the reading of your book, actually, that this came out. And I told her, I was like, this is crazy. Like, I just have to stop this. This is insane. I was like, we have all these points to travel on for free, but we're not using them because I keep playing the status game and getting addicted to the status of that. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm so I mean, glad that you I think that, that if you replace that with any number of things, we're all, you know, we all buy into something. We all buy into some idea that like when we get the more of whatever it is we're pursuing, that's when we'll be happy. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, like there's just no there's no evidence for that. No, you know, no. it's not. It, there's all the and, evidence to the contrary, just like you said. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of what is it, that famous Viktor Frankl quote in Man's Search for Meaning when he says, like, basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says, there's a space between experience and reaction, and in that space is all of our freedom. Yes. Mm. You know, like, because I've had that, like, for example, Mike, one time I was on this crummy commuter flight, I think it was from Chicago to St. Louis, And again, I love both of those places. I'm not criticizing. (laughs) It was like just one of those gross airplanes from like the early 20th century. Just (laughs) it's barely held together in a tiny seat next to a dangerously obese guy. It was cold. It was wet. It was smelly. Just as miserable as air travel can get. Well, short of crashing. Yeah. And I remember I was sitting there and I was just like so mad. And all of a sudden I stopped myself and I was like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, it's almost like the serenity yeah. prayer. I was like, I was like being mad. I'm just hurting myself. And the odd thing is I was reading a book about 12 step programs and Buddhism and spirituality. And I ended up having one of the nicest plane rides I've ever had based on like just simply what I was experiencing and thinking. And it sort of has stuck with me that this idea that apart from like being attacked by a bear, for the most part, we can choose how we respond to things. We can choose where we put our attention and it takes practice. And sometimes it's really difficult, but like it's this weird predilection that we have. I'll put my attention on like one negative thing out of a hundred remarkable positive things. 
Yeah. And I don't know why we're wired that way as humans. Mike and I will like, we were working with this therapist guy who was helping us to like realize ways we triggered each other. And it was incredibly helpful. And he helped us to like tune into kind of like the childhood patterns that were getting triggered over and over and over again. He always would remind us it's not about the content of like whatever argument you guys are having. Like it's never about the content and to remind us to kind of check in with our little guys, like our interior, you know, committee, the crew of Mm -hmm. all the children that are (laughs) running our central nervous system and running our emotions from the different stages of our lives. And it's been really interesting because after those sessions, like if we'll be in the middle of an argument, if I'll ask Mike to check in with his crew or ask him like, what's going on with your crew? Or he'll ask me, it's so much easier to just be mad at the other person. Like, it's just mm-hmm. so much easier to be like, this airplane ride sucks, or like, you're dumb, <laughs> or you're yeah. wrong, than it is to shift the perspective, check in with my interior landscape, and be like, what do I actually need right now? And what's, you know, what's really going on here? And how can I change my perspective? Because that's the work. And it's uncomfortable. Like it's really, I find it deeply uncomfortable to switch directions sometimes. And it's just easier to be mad. It's so uncomfortable. And we're never, what's funny is I was doing a TV show recently, even though I'm not an actor, occasionally I get asked to Really? It was called Blunt Talk. And it was on stars and I got to play Patrick Stewart's nemesis. So it was really (laughs) and fun, but we shot a scene in a preschool and we had all this time off, like while they were setting up shots and they had a list of like do's and don'ts for the three-year-olds in the preschool. Uh And I was like, why do we stop teaching this to people after they leave preschool? Cause the do's were like, you know, do forgive, do share, do, you know, and it was like, don't use your fists, use your words, don't sulk. I was like, so we basically learn all our best lessons by the time we're three and then spend the rest of our life having them beaten out of us. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, but what you were saying reminded me of an argument I had with an ex-girlfriend of mine. And sometimes when we have arguments, we can to some extent, rationally make the case that we're justified in being angry. Mm -hmm. But this particular argument was amazing because my ex-girlfriend had done nothing wrong. Like she was 100% blameless, but I was really mad. And I had a little awareness of that. And all of a sudden it dawned on me like, oh, I'm, this is just me. Like this has nothing to do with the other person. And I came up with a little list of things. I now try to ask myself if I'm angry or arguing The first is, is there another way to look at it? Yeah. The second is, what's my role in this? The third is, what's really going on? I find it really helpful if you introduce these questions, whether it's an argument you're having with yourself or with another person. And ultimately, there's one sort of goal that I have in a lot of these processes is to move past almost like the hard belligerent exterior, you know, the belligerence and the anger of arguing and to try and connect with what's vulnerable and soft underneath it. Yeah. And that those moments when that happens to me, that's like you can hear angels singing and like (laughs) God disco dancing saying like, finally, like you broke through, like you got past the anger, you got past the belligerence, you got past the toughness and you connected with that core of vulnerability. And that's like, for me, at least that's where it's like so much remarkable growth happens. Well, that's where the gold is with yourself, but it's also where the gold is between two people, because I found, I don't know if you remember this particular argument, Mike, but we were sitting across the living room from each other, like, you know, at a standoff. And Mm -hmm. it's exactly what you said, Moby, like we both chose to remember it wasn't about what was happening right then. And we chose to ask ourselves, you know, not those exact questions, which I love that you just shared, but something similar. And you could literally, like I could feel my entire body shift, the energy in the room changed. And all of a sudden, like I wanted to sit next to Mike. I wanted to touch him. And before that I like hated him. So it's just amazing how, and that's the biggest gift. And I think you've really done this in your book that you can give is that vulnerability is that like soft underbelly of, Hey, like this is scary to share, but here I am. 
It's true. And you were asking earlier about like why as humans we're hardwired for this. And I was watching some nature documentary, which is what you do when you're old and sober. (laughs) (laughs) And in the documentary, there was a watering hole. And so there were lions and hippos and alligators and all these like scary creatures at the watering hole. But there were also monkeys and the monkeys would have to like run down, drink some filthy water, make sure they didn't get eaten by an alligator, a hippo or a lion and run back to like the safety of the trees. And I had this thought. I was like, oh, those are our ancestors. Right. You know, so our ancestors were basically like sick, scared and starving forever and we've inherited that you know we've inherited this anger and this fear like we just assume everything is going wrong and our only way to respond is by being angry you know and afraid and fighting and it's kind of nice to just sort of like be able to reassure ourselves and say like you you know what like things are okay like let your emotional state actually be a reflection of the fact that things are okay and not that you're a scared monkey trying to drink dirty water before an alligator eats you Yeah. And I think that's the process of evolution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so in stark contrast to that, we live in a very tricky time, politically speaking, in the United States. And I know you've been very public about your political views, which I love. So given the fact that it would be awesome as humans, if we could behave as though everything is generally okay, because generally speaking, like we're not going to get eaten by a tiger. How do we then, how, like, what are you recommend or what are you doing moving into 2017 as Trump becomes president? Like, I don't know, just what's your wisdom around it? Huh. I mean, I guess there are a couple ways to look at it. And in a way, I almost don't want to malign Trump because it's, that's just too much fun and too easy. <laughs> um, Did you see the book that just came out that people have been talking about? The one, oh, the, it, yeah. The, the 300 paint that are all blank. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) But in a way, I'll say that like Trump is kind of and this almost makes me feel badly for him. Like he's the opposite of everything that we're talking about. Yeah. And I don't mean in an evil way. I mean that he believes that status and wealth and power will fix everything and make him happy. You know, There's even a really interesting quote. One of the only interesting things he's ever said is he was doing an interview, I forget, for some magazine about 10 years ago. And in the interview, he even said, he said, you know, introspection is not my thing. That's a road I just don't want to go down. Whoa. And I was like, wow, what an oddly introspective way to say that introspective isn't being being introspective isn't your thing. But... I mean, you can see that on his face. Yeah, it's just like Like, he's bought into everything. Right. And he's sick and he's sad. Yeah. So moving into 2017, I guess it's almost, it makes me think of like an emergency room doctor. Mm. You know, and the first thing you have to do is try and keep the patient alive. So I guess to that extent, we have to figure out like, what are the organizations and the disenfranchised groups who are really going to be victimized and how do we try and help them? You know, I think of like the Islamic community, the Latino community, the LGBTQ community, you know, like who needs immediate help? And then beyond that is like trying to change, to do what we can to just sort of like maybe in the midterms or certainly the next presidential election, like to try and have sane, progressive leadership. And then beyond that is how do we fix our species to stop making mistakes that are destroying us and destroying the planet. You know, like, how do we get our species to stop being so collectively destructive and dumb? Yeah. Well, Um, and I I do think that that is part of the conversation we're having right now. It is. I mean, (laughs) mean, if you think a lot of corporations, for instance, like it's a lot of, it's quarterly profits in the stocks and, you know, it's going after chasing the numbers and not thinking of long-term. And then, of course, they run the government. Right. Yeah. And to that end, I think there's one of the hardest things I find is to remember that humanity affects everybody. You know, like, so even the people I want to vilify, 
you know, the Dick Cheney's and the Koch brothers and the Trump's and the Newt Gingrich's, you know, all the, the Roger Bannon's, you know, these people that it's so easy to hate them to just remember that, like, they are in their own baffling, clueless way trying to create meaning. Like, they're not doing a very good job of it, but they're still they're stumbling through the human condition the same way we all are. And how do we compassionately correct all of us so that we can like live in a more like sane, self-sustaining, rational, healthy way. Cause we all know what that looks like. Yeah. And we, it's just the fact that we choose not to do it is really confusing. Yeah. But hmm. that's a great question to yeah. even like live into that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we kind of like make that softening and kindness part of our daily experience? on the level of every human being just talking to each other and working with each other. Yeah. And asking ourselves, why are we making these choices? You know, like, cause we tend, at least I do, I, I sort of blindly grab for things. You know, if I have like a minute free and my phone is sitting there, Oh, totally. you know, even though like I try to be a sort of like meditating yoga, doing NPR listening, progressive <laughs> on the path to enlightenment, I still, if my phone is there, I want to grab it and check Instagram. Of course, because Instagram is amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's asking ourselves, like, when we're grabbing for things, whether it's food or sex or anger or whatever, it's like it's somehow learning to interrupt that process, which doesn't mean we shouldn't have those things. It just means that, like, the compulsive grabbing isn't doing anyone any favors except for the companies that make the products that are being grabbed. Exactly. I like it. I'm going to ask a question about music. So, oh, just so you know, I was playing some of your music before we got on this. I think this was pretty interesting. I played your new single that just dropped, Natural Blues. And so Penelope was in here, who's our daughter, is 15 months old now. And she started, she's just bouncing up and down, doing her thing. Did she love it? Yeah, she loved it. And then I put on, then we went all the way back to the beginning to Animal Rights and so it's the second or third song on the album. You just skipped and, and, and your daughter started screaming and crying. <laughs> no, she started, there was a chair that it, I was like, it was either someone to love or heavy flow. And literally there's a chair that was next to her. And she literally started looking at me and just started pushing the chair. Like, <laughs> like, like it was like she was at a punk rock show. Um, I'm glad there weren't any matches around. <laughs> set the chair on fire. I was so regarding like your music is like you have some hard like I don't know not hardcore punk rock they're definitely harder but like you have punk rock albums then you have play which is a little bit softer and then you also have straight up like ambient music which we were listening to Penelope and I were listening to the other morning that just goes on for like four hours I feel mm-hmm. like like when you sit down like is it your state of like each year when you're sitting down at your computer, you're like, this is what I want to make now. Like, how do you determine what music's about to come out of Moby? I guess it's subjective because I think that a lot of musicians have a great allegiance towards one genre. You know, like jazz musicians make jazz, classical musicians play classical. And I found at an early age that my allegiance is just to how music affects me. And, you know, I can think of it almost like food. Like sometimes spicy food is great. Sometimes bland food is great. Sometimes fruit is great. Sometimes fried food is great. So it would seem so arbitrary to restrict myself musically in terms of genre when, you know, I have my little studio and I can go in there and I can create all these different genres. And I don't mean I can create them well. Like I'm, I don't think I'm good at it necessarily, but like it's just so much fun to sometimes play punk rock and scream at the top of my lungs and other times make very calm, quiet music. And I'm really glad that I've had a weird career where I don't just have to like align myself with one genre and keep churning that out day in day out i love that you're really like equal opportunity yeah (laughs) and then so which i know this will probably come out in volume two but play was your biggest selling album is that right in the states yeah yeah in the states when you sit down to create music now because this kind of goes along with what we've been talking about this whole time do you think back to say oh i have to make this 
like I have to match plays success. Like does uh, that luckily no. I did after the success of play for like the six or seven years after that, I really aggressively tried to keep that success train chugging along. You know, I was drinking, I was going out all the time, I was touring constantly, and I was really obsessed with fame. Like I wanted to be on the cover of magazines and I wanted all the attention, even though I was miserable. <laughs> you know, like I kept pursuing it without ever asking myself, is this working? Like, is this making me happy? Is this creating sustainable well-being? And that was, again, part of getting sober was recognizing like the things I was attached to and the things I was pursuing weren't creating really any benefit. They weren't making, you know, creating happiness or health. So the nice thing now is that no one buys records anyway. Yeah. So even if I wanted to sell records, unless you're Adele. Unless you're Adele, yeah. Or, or whatever, <laughs> like no one buys records. And people especially don't buy records from 51-year-old guys who refuse to tour. <laughs> you know, so it's so – because I, I hate touring. Like I, yeah. To me, a good tour would be like getting in my car and driving to the mountains and going hiking and coming home. Like yeah. that's that's a successful tour. <laughs> but so there's this emancipation that comes from not being able to monetize what I do. Like I can't sell records and I can't sell tickets because no one buys records and I don't go on tour. So as a result, I get to just do whatever it is I want to do. And I guess some people would find that frustrating to not be able to really aggressively monetize, you know, the fruits of their labor. But I have a lot of acceptance around it and I find it really liberating. Yeah, because then it can be for the making mm -hmm. of music itself. It's for the creative act. And there's a directness there of like not saying that music is a means to something. But for me, the act of being in my studio and making music like that's. If no one ever even hears it, that's still just the joy that I get from it. I love so that. beautiful. I remember being in your house when I first met you when we were on a road trip and you said, I think Kate asked you the question, like, do you have any vacation or trips planned? And you said, I haven't taken, I haven't stopped in like 22 years. So being at home with nothing <laughs> on the books and no planes booked is like complete. It was just like amazing. I remember you said that. Yeah, that's like, especially like during holidays, you know, friends were asking me like, oh, what are you going to be doing for Christmas and New Year's? I was like, oh, it's my favorite time of year because I get to stay home and work more. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know you have chosen the optimal career path for yourself. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, Christmas, I ended up having dinner with some friends, but like all day on Christmas, I stayed home and I worked on music and I did some writing and I went hiking and I did yoga. And I was like, it was perfect. I mean, definitely indicative of someone with some attachment issues, but... <laughs> That's for another episode, I think. I want to, from a, because you've played with a lot of folks in your life from a music standpoint, or now that you're a regular actor, it sounds like, is there anyone that you haven't played with or that is still alive or that has passed away that you wish you could have played with more or at least collaborated with once? Do you know what's funny? There were two people on my list that I wanted to really like collaborate with at some point. And it was Leonard Cohen and mm. Prince. Oh, they were yeah. my, like, they were my top two. And I would actually, I'd been emailing with Leonard Cohen about at some point working together. And I put out feelers through my man. Cause I clearly, I couldn't get in touch with Prince directly, but I'd put out feelers saying like, would you ever be open to doing anything? And so it's just so sad and ironic that the two people who were top of my list just died. Wow. So I'm sure that, okay, the one, and I'm almost hesitant to say this because hopefully I'm not like, like, <laughs> you're not a curse. You're not a curse, Mo. Well, we'll see. The one person I really love, or at least his voice and his approach to music is James Blake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I just think he, there's something really special about what he's doing. So I'd love to do something with him at some point. Hopefully that won't mean that he'll be dead in the next year. Well, I'm sure he listens to our podcast, so <laughs> <laughs> so certainly that'll be happening soon. <laughs> Moby, this was really such a great conversation. I miss you. Thank you for talking to us today. Are you and guys coming to LA anytime soon? I'm sure. We always end up there at least um, once or twice a year. We have no 
plans. No plans right now, but okay. you know, you never know. We'll let you know. We'll go for a hike. And I'll meet you in New York if you come. Yeah. <laughs> for 30 seconds before we both want to leave. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if you see John Hodgman, say hi from me. John Hodgman? He texted me today. He's in, I think he lives in Maine. He was a Daily Show correspondent. And if you remember those, the Apple ads where it was him and Justin Long. Yeah. Like Justin Long was the actor who yes. represented Apple. And then there was like the round faced yeah. guy who represented PC. Oh, that- yes, I know exactly. Yeah. So he's the only person I know in Maine. So if you see him Other walking than us, around, yes. Oh my God. Well, we'll keep an eye out for him. <laughs> All right, Moby. Thank you so much. It was really nice talking to you guys. You too. Thanks, Moby. Bye. Bye. Ever feel like you're constantly doing things, but aren't able to carve out the time or energy for the things that really matter to you? Mike and I want to share our top five tools for making a life, not just a living. To learn what they are, go to katenorthrup.com forward slash tools. See you on the next episode.